This is a sermon on money. Non-staff elder gets to do it again. Um, I just get this feeling that when I say sermon on money coming at you, that half of you flinch, half of you roll your eyes. Because money gets a bad rap. The Bible has so much to say about money. Jesus had so much to say about money. And I think it leaves us thinking, or asking, maybe asking this question. Is money just a necessary evil? There's so much in the Bible that warns us about money. There's so much, Jesus loves one rich guy and then he condemns the next rich guy. Where is Jesus on this thing? What, is being rich bad? Is money a necessary evil? Is that all it is? Something just to trip us up? Money is not evil. Money is a good thing, a blessing from God. A human invention that by his providence and sovereignty he allowed. Think about it. The monetary system, let's just back up 30,000 foot. The monetary system, being able to use money to purchase things and sell things for your family is a blessing. Because the other option is we, we return to bartering. Can you imagine having to get through your week barter, bartering this week? Well, we're out of milk, out of eggs. We don't have chickens or a milk cow. So who do we go barter with? And what about the next week? Need some clothes. Well, I don't know how to make clothes. So where do we get clothes? How do we get clothes? You see, money is a good thing. It's a good and helpful thing. It's, it's one of the things that separates us from the animal kingdom because we're able to subdue and trade goods and services and subdue the earth. Money's a good thing. It's a blessing. It gives us an opportunity to exchange and trade more fairly. Without money, how do you know what your service is worth? How do you know what your goods are worth? How does your company know how to sell something? And how do you know if you're getting a fair price for what you're buying? Monetary system... The monetary system is a blessing to us. It is a good thing. Money is not evil. For the Christian, money gives us the opportunity to glorify God via our investments, expanding our stewardship, expanding our generosity, and employing more ministry opportunities. Money gives us that opportunity. You can invest, you can save, you can give. You can invest again, make more, save, invest again, spend, give. It makes it more fair. It makes it more less cumbersome. Money's not bad. Money's a good thing. Money is not evil. However, I want you to hear these warnings from Paul in chapter 6. Remember, he's written these things down because he really wanted to come to Timothy. Timothy's a young, timid pastor in a tough cultural situation, and he really wanted to come and give these instructions on how to be the pillar and the buttress of truth, the church. But he couldn't, so he wrote it down. I'm so glad and I'm so thankful that he wasn't able to go because he wrote it down, and now we have it. 
And so all the instruction that's given in this whole letter, everything leading up to 3, chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, where he says this is all about teaching you how to be the pillar and buttress of truth so that people will believe in Jesus. That's the pinnacle of this letter. And everything flowing to chapter 3, 14 through 16, and everything flowing away from it. If you, if you just think of it as a mountaintop. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16 is at the top. Everything going up and coming down is instructions on how to be that. How to be a church where people will believe on Jesus and keep believing in Jesus. So, these instructions are good, but that's the reason that we have them. And these, this last chapter is, turns into more warnings. He's been giving specific instruction. Now he's going to give some warnings to four different groups of people. Don't be unnerved by the money sermon and don't be unnerved by this, that we're going to read this whole chapter. Three to the end of the chapter. Verse three on. It's all connected, all four groups. We're going to look at four types of people. We're going to look at the false teacher. We're going to look at what I was going to call poor people, but I'm just going to call them regular folk. We're not poor. There's, I mean, I don't think you can look around and really know, and I'm not making light of this because I know some may have been close to destitute. You may have known people close to absolutely having nothing. But there are not many of us like that. So we'll call it regular folk. Paul doesn't use the word poor, so we'll just call them regular folk. We'll talk about false teachers, regular folk, a good pastor, and rich people. Got it? And we'll go over those again in just a minute. But let's, let's read this chapter together. And um, you follow along as I read it, and then we'll look at these four groups. Verse 3. Teach and urge these things. Now, Paul throws that little sentence in there. It could be argued what he's talking about is everything I've been saying up until now. Teach and urge these things. Some people would think, now that needs to go there because he's saying, teach and urge the things I'm going to say. Really, what he's saying is, everything I'm giving you in this letter, teach it to the people of God and then urge them to walk in it. Make sense? If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there's great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, you, pastor, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. 
He who is blessed in the only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Now, this first group in verse 3, down to about 5, 3 through 5, is false teachers. Paul takes just a minute to once again go back and talk about these men that have been in this church or this group of churches who have somehow gained prominence, probably because they were very smart men, knowledgeable men. They knew a lot. They were impressive to some people. And they had gained a following. But these men... Whatever they were saying was not the gospel. They were not concerned with exposing and retelling again and again the story of the good news about Jesus and unpacking that for these people. That was not their main concern. Their main concern was to stir theological waters and come off sounding smart and create an argument because people kind of liked that tension and next thing you know he's got an argument group going or a debate group going and... His bottom line for doing this is that they owe him money for being that guy. Look at verse 5. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Talking in spiritual terms and stirring theological waters ought to be a way I can make money. And what Paul is saying here is don't have anything to do with those people. In fact, what he's told us in the first of this letter, tell them to get out. Stop or leave. It's kind of harsh, but that's on Timothy's shoulders. Tell them to stop or leave. Have nothing to do with people that aren't interested in exposing sound doctrine. Good, solid truths that we see over and over in the Bible about Jesus and his gospel, God and his people. When they expose that, if they're not doing that, leave. And if they're seeing this as some way to keep a job or get more money, that's the only reason they're acting like this, leave. There's two red flags here for the false teacher and for us. False teachers are divisive and they're greedy. And or greedy. A false teacher, you wonder, what, who am I listening to? On the radio, a podcast, who, who am I listening to? Listen for, are they stirring up controversy for the sake of stirring up controversy? So they can gain a following on their podcast and get paid more? <laughs> False teachers are not, they're not concerned about these two things. They're not concerned about intent, and they are not concerned about content. Their intent is off, and you have to look for it. You have to sniff it out. What is their intent in preaching and teaching and saying what they're saying? Are they trying to help me understand God and his gospel and his story and believe in him more? Are they trying to help me have more faith? 
Or are they just stirring up stuff and they're selling books? What are they doing? False teachers lean towards divisive and greedy. That's our two red flags. It's really that simple. There's not a whole lot more that can be said about it. Now, a lot has been said from this pulpit about the prosperity gospel and prosperity teachers. I'm not going to digress here and go into that. If you don't know what I mean when I say prosperity gospel, Google it or YouTube it, even better, this afternoon. YouTube prosperity gospel. And I'm not going to go into a lot, but I will say this. Prosperity gospel teachers do not spend themselves on the integrity of what's being said. They don't spend themselves on the integrity of the content. Prosperity gospel teachers are depraved in their mind and their mind steers them away from what's really true and they are the blind leading the blind. Prosperity gospel teachers are false teachers. And that's all we'll say about that for now. Now, second group of people, the regular folk. All right, look at verse 6. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. And then verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into senseless and harmful desires, plunging themselves into ruin and destruction, and they wander from the faith. Okay? Pretty serious. Who are these regular folk? These are the folks that I'll do my best to describe them as living check to check. Seems like money's always pretty tight at their house. Maybe they have to work pretty hard to stay out of a bind. They're not necessarily destitute or poor, but they wouldn't call themselves rich or wealthy. Doing their best to make it. Not a lot of margin in the finances. Paul doesn't use the word poor, but he seems to be addressing those that might often be tempted to be rich, to have more and have some margin in their finances. The greatest gain for the regular folks is to be content. Don't look around and be intimidated by those that have a little more or maybe a lot more than you. You hear me? Regular folk, because everybody in here thinks they're that. <laughs> Don't be intimidated by those that have a little or maybe a lot more resources than you, toys than you, homes. Don't be intimidated. Be content. And when you're content, when you say, Jesus, Father, give me just enough. Give me just what we need. That's my goal. Give me just what we need. And I'll trust you. When, when we say that, we're content. Don't get depressed when you're not able to go and do and go and buy what others can go and do and buy. Be content with what he's put right in front of you. Be faithful to work hard and make smart decisions with what he's put in front of you. Continue to work and make smart financial decisions. And when you're content, this passage says you will find gain. What does that mean? So if I'm content, he'll give me more money? Maybe. Maybe. He blesses his people. But when you're content... You will find gain. I think this is what he means. 
And I think Jesus explains this in Matthew 16. You can turn there if you want to, or you can just listen. Matthew 16, verse 24. This is what you'll gain. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You find yourself saying, man, I just wish I had unlimited resources. I could do this. We could do that. We could be this. We could be that. If I just had unlimited resources, if I just had some more money, if I just had a way to get more, it would be easier. Right? And what Paul is saying is, that desire will ruin you. It will destroy you, that desire. And you are in jeopardy of forfeiting your faith when this happens. Paul says it, he calls it the word wander. Not wonder, wander. He uses it right here in verse 10. Wander. Wander from the faith when I am saying, I just need more money. I just need more fill in the blank. The temptation there is that you will wander. And I don't think we really feel it. This temptation to walk, this idea that we might wander. I'll never wander. I just need some more money, Brad. I want you to think about wander. Think about your small child at a water park, uh, at a mall. In a crowd of people, your small child, and you look away for just a second, and they've wandered, and they are lost. Some of you, that may have happened to you. And just me saying that, you know that feeling in your gut that you just got? That's the feeling we need to have when we hear Paul say, don't desire to be rich. Be content with what he's put in front of you because if you desire to be rich, enemy number one for you is that you're just going to wander off. And what this ultimately means is you will lose all faith. All faith in Jesus. All faith in his church. All faith in God. You will lose it. You will wander and lose it if you continue to desire to be rich. It will ruin you. It will ruin your faith. What does a man profit? If he gains the whole world, but he wanders off. Is that profit? No, it isn't. Verse 10. Money is not evil. Now, it doesn't say that, but it says this. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is where we get tripped up. And more than just tripped up, it will slowly pull us away from what is true. This is not about an inventory of resources or uh, checking your bank account. Paul's not going there yet. He's not saying if, uh, if you have this much money or this many things that you need to be careful about wanting to be rich. Or if you don't have, he's not delaying. This is a heart matter. What do you love? It's a scary word, wander away. It's a scary question. What do we love? What do we really love? 
Don't be tempted by these desires. He calls them cravings. We have a phrase for this love, desire, craving. We have a phrase for it, and you know it. It's called keeping up with the Joneses. And it's a real craving. It is a real desire. It is a real temptation. And it will ruin us if we don't fight that craving. And we are just as prone to wander off like a child in a crowd. The third guy he talks to, the third group of guys, men of God. Look at verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession. Verse 14. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the charge for the pastor in contrast to the false teacher. Pastor, you give your life, you give your attention, your energy, you give it to sound doctrine and preaching the gospel time and again, in season and out of season, is the phrase he'll use in his next letter. That is what the pastor is to give himself to. That keeping it unstained and above reproach, making sure that what is being preached, content, is good news, and it's thorough, and that people believe it. What is being said is very important. And in contrast to the false teacher, they aren't concerned about the false teachers aren't concerned about the purity and integrity of what they're teaching. That is what the pastor, the good pastor, is to primarily be concerned about and not his income. And that's why, remember last chapter and a few weeks ago in 1 Timothy 5? Pay the man so he's not worried about that. So he'll guard your heart and guard the deposit that he's been given so you'll keep believing it. You see how this works? This balance? Pay the man, take care of his family so that he is not worried about what he's saying to you being jeopardizing his income. You want your pastor to teach you sound doctrine, full counsel of the gospel. He's echoing 1 Timothy 4.16. Turn to 4.16. 1 Timothy 4.16. Turn back a few pages. He says it a little differently here, a little more emphatic, a little more clear. He tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.16, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Your salvation, the pastor's salvation, is at stake. Your salvation and the pastor's salvation is at stake. And the protector of your faith and the pastor's faith is to preach sound doctrine and not be concerned about accumulating wealth. That's the pastor you want. Take care of him. Until our king appears, he talks about Jesus coming and we can't see him right now, but he's going to appear. There's this hopeful anticipation about Jesus appearing. We can finally see him. But until that happens, church, we need pastors to be the rudder on the ship, steering us away from this temptation to love the world. So we need to set our pastors up to preach sound doctrine and not be concerned about wealth. Take care of them. 
We need the constant daily reminder to not fall in love with the things of this world, to not desire to be rich, but to trust him and believe the gospel. That's the pastor's role. And it's weighty. I mean, it is, it is tough. I talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago. To come with teaching in this gospel, these truths, and to stand before your people who you're responsible for and see these truths that some of them are easy to understand, some of them are not, and to wonder, will they believe it? Am I saying it the right way? Am I being clear? Have I pulled enough truth out? Have I pulled too much? Are we, are we examining this rightly? Man, that's a wearisome task. It, it takes a physical toll on you to think like that and to, and to prepare like that and to expose like that. It takes a physical toll on a man to do that. It's wearisome. It's good, but it's hard. And I want you to know that that's the role of the preacher is to take on that task of praying for you and work hard at exposing sound doctrine and guarding your heart to not fall to the temptation of wanting to be rich. We're going to skip over to the last two verses in the chapter real quick. Verse 20, chapter 6. Because he follows this up in 20 and 21, this talk to Timothy directly or to pastors. O Timothy, verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions in what is falsely called knowledge. He's referring back to the false teachers. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. There's another one. Not just wonder, but swerve. Uh, this dude hasn't wondered. He just took an exit ramp. He's out. For some it'll be quick. For some they'll wonder. Timothy, it's on you. Preach sound doctrine. Avoid stirring theological waters to gain a following preach to these people the gospel. It's, it's interesting that he uses financial language there. Make a, This deposit that was given to you, don't be concerned about big bank deposits, Timothy. Be concerned about the deposit that was made in you. The only real true thing, the only thing that will last eternity, that's the deposit you are concerned about. That's the deposit you give your life to. Now, fourth group. The rich. Nobody in here thinks they're this guy, right? <laughs> but really, comparatively, on a worldwide scale, we're very wealthy. Everybody in here. We have the opportunity to work hard and make smart decisions and experience and enjoy at least some measure of prosperity. The rich in this age, he says... Charge them not to be haughty. What does haughty mean? It means to be condescending and have an attitude of superiority. We have to be careful, church. We all have to be careful because someone in here, besides you, thinks you're the rich guy. And the reason is you have a little more than they do. So this is for everybody. And some of you in here feel like regular folk because you don't have as much as most others. We have to be careful with one another and guard against this haughtiness, this 
idea that I feel better about myself when I'm around people who have less. That discourages your brothers and sisters and it sets them up to have a desire to be rich when we're that way with one another. This is hard to check. It's hard to find. You can be the key to helping your brothers and sisters not have the desire to be rich when you check your heart and ask yourself, how do I feel about my current situation? How do I feel? Is it that I don't have enough and I need more? Or is it that I have, I have pretty good and I feel pretty good about myself, especially when I see people who don't have as much as I do? Haughtiness is hard to find. It's subtle. And you probably can't see it on yourself. You need to ask a brother or your spouse and say, hey, what do I think about what we have? Do I find this confidence and this superiority and feel good about myself because of the margin that we have in our finances or because of the things we have? Is that where my joy, is that where my confidence is? In a bank account number or stuff? It's a good check to check your heart. Am I haughty? Do I really like that feeling of being financial, hey, air quotes here, secure? Probably can't see it. It's all his anyway, right? So how can we be haughty? It's all his. It's not really yours anyway. Your money and your stuff and your things, you're stewards of it. It's not yours. Haggai 2.7 says this. Listen to what God says to the prophet. I will shake all the nations so that all the treasures will come out and come in. I'll shake the nations and all the treasures will come out and come in. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. It's not even yours. You're going to be haughty about that? Your situation? You're going to draw superior feelings and confidence from your bank account and joy? He goes on to say, the uncertainty of riches. Don't find comfort in your account numbers. Be wise in saving money is one thing. Being wise to save money. I'm no financial expert. My track record is spotted at best. But I know that saving money is wise. It's a good thing. Making good financial decisions is good. But church, don't ever call your savings account a safety net. That's one of the words that some people use. Some, I hear financial people use it. Don't ever call your checking account or your savings account or your retirement. Don't call it a safety net. According to this passage, there are no safety nets. There's no such thing as a safety net. All riches are uncertain. Do you place your confidence in your trust? And do you, you kind of put, uh, get comfort by the numbers in the bank? That's the hard question. That's the hard question, and that's the hard question. What am I depending on? What am I comfortable with? Where do I find that comfort? Because what is in your heart is saying in that moment when you say, I have a safety net. This is what your heart is saying. I don't fully trust the Lord. When we need this large amount of money, have to have that you know, rainy day stuff, there is a portion of that that is wise. But some of us take that too far. 
and we need this safety net, and it has to be a large amount, you need to ask yourself, am I dependent on that as a safety net? Or do I trust the Lord fully with it? Riches are uncertain. Do not depend on them. They are fleeting and can go away like that. Some of you know that. He goes on to say this. But depend on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, this is key. Don't lose. I'm, I'm, we're not going to be much longer. Look at this phrase. He, God provides everything for us to enjoy. And this is going to sound really weird based on everything Paul has just said. But he's given us money and resources and things so that they can be enjoyed. That's a good thing. Enjoyed. And what he means by enjoy, they're to be used, not hoarded, not protected. Use them for his glory. Use your money for his glory. Don't sit on a pile of it. Use it. Use your things. Kids, I know the kiddos are in here today. Kids, you know one of the most faith-building things you can do right now is share your toys. It teaches you, I don't need this to be happy. I want to help somebody else be happy and enjoy these things together. Mom and Dad, do we put that on display for our kids? Or are we stockpiling stuff? Do they see us enjoying our things? Enjoying our money with others? I wonder what they see. He's allowed us to live in some abundance. I mean, everybody in here. We have good things. But they're to be used, not hoarded. And he goes on to say, be rich in good works. Be generous and share. Those two words. Be generous and share. And the hard question is, well, Brad, what is generous? And I ask myself that question. Brad, what's generous? And what I'm usually asking there, and what maybe you're usually asking there is... How much do I have to give? How, how much to... All right, tell me what I have to pony up here. No, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a sacrificial generosity to share and have an eye. Listen, have an eye. Look around you. Be attentive to those that don't have what you have. You're not just helping somebody financially when you give them a gift. You're not just helping them when you let them use your stuff. You're not just helping them out of the situation. Folks, when you do that and you look around at people and you see somebody just has a little less than you or they're in a bind and you help them, you're protecting their heart from wanting to be rich when you do it. We help each other. Not wander and not swerve. And if you have a little more than the next guy... Pay attention to him. Help him not want to be rich. Those people are in your life that have a little less than you or a lot less than you. They're in your life to keep your heart from wandering and not being dependent on your stuff and your money. That's why they're in your life. Are you unwilling to share things because of how much it costs you? You can borrow that, but you can't borrow that. That costs too much. Generous and sharing should mark the church. Now, you, 
You protect each other in this. This is how we protect each other and keep each other in the faith. If you have a little more, help somebody who doesn't. If you don't have it, don't want to be rich. Be content. Write big checks to people. Give away some serious amounts of cash. If you're wondering, hey, I don't know if I'm being generous or not. I don't know if, you know, I may depend on my money a little bit too much. Give some of it away. That's the solution. Buy an appliance for somebody's home. Buy someone a car. Take someone on vacation with you that would never be able to afford that vacation. Help pay for their kid's college. Help pay for their child's adoption. Look for people to loan your tools to and your vehicles to, your homes to. It protects them and it protects you. And you may be sitting there saying, Brad, you have lost your mind on what you just said. Buy somebody a car. Give cash away. Buy an appliance. What? And the only reason I say that, I want to tell you, I hadn't lost my mind because I've seen all those things happen here. And it protects the regular folk from wanting to be rich and it keeps those that have a little extra or a lot extra from wandering from the faith and depending on their money more than God. And I wonder, aren't we supposed to be really different? From the culture? Isn't that what Paul's getting at here? Pillar and buttress of truth, standing out, holding up only thing that's really true. Shouldn't our lives be marked by some outlandish generosity? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't our lives be marked by this? This crazy sharing? I mean, half his tools are at his house and his lawnmower's over there and their car's over there and they didn't need it this week and I've seen it. But... Let's don't stop there. Let's don't just say, pat ourselves on the back and say, well, we're kind of doing that already, but is there a ceiling to that? Is there a ceiling? Are the lost in our world doing more outlandish things for people in need than we are in the church? Is there a ceiling? I don't think there's a ceiling to that. I don't see it in Scripture like, well, don't give that much money. Come on, dude. Wow, don't, don't be crazy. Here's a, here's a word of caution to regular folk after what I just said. You're not entitled to the blessings of the rich because you go to church with them. Don't, don't be entitled after you hear this passage. Don't, don't think, well, they need to protect me. I guess, I'll just, I guess I'll just wonder if somebody doesn't buy me a microwave. <laughs> you are not entitled to the blessings of the rich because you go to church with them. Any of us that works hard to make smart decisions can have a shot at some prosperity. So you work hard, you make smart decisions, and you be content with what you have, but people get in a bind every once in a while. The curveballs come. Air conditioners blow up, right? Things happen that you weren't prepared for. I get it. And those of us with a little more need to be attentive to that. We have to be attentive to that because it protects us both.
I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Two more places I want you to turn and we'll be done. Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 21. Here's the last warning for those who have wealth. And, and by that I mean, in a worldwide context, if you have any margin in your finances at all, you have wealth, right? If you have a little extra, you're wealthy. And if you have a lot extra, you're wealthy. But it's bigger than we think. Matthew 6, 19-21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is what Paul's talking about. He's echoing Jesus here. Church, your heart follows what it loves. My heart follows what it loves. Your heart follows what it loves. And this is really scary for anybody with wealth. Any abundance at all. And the only, the only way, according to this passage, or one of the main ways, to assassinate haughtiness and lack of faith when it comes to money is to give some of it away and share more. Give more of it away and share it more. That is the remedy for haughtiness and lack of faith with your money. And saying, I don't, I don't really de- fully depend on you, Lord. I need that money. It's dangerous. It's a dangerous place to be. It leads to ruin and destruction. Here's the goal. Solomon does a great job of summing this up in three verses. And I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 and 9. Here's the goal. This is my prayer. This is a prayer that, that Solomon prays in Proverbs chapter 30. I want you to hear clearly this morning. We are in this together fighting the good faith so that those of us who have a little less won't want to be rich and so those of us that have a little more won't depend on it too much. It is beautiful. It's the church. And it's sweet. You need one another to walk in this. But here's the goal. Here's my prayer for us. This is something I want you to pray for your family this week. And it's Solomon's prayer. He's actually begging. He's begging here. Begging God for something. This is what he begs for. Verse 7. Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Please, Lord. He's begging God. Don't let me die until you do these things in me. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Give me just what I need. He's saying, help me be content. Give me just what I need. 
He goes on. Lest I be full, rich, wealthy, and deny you and say, Who's the Lord? I don't need the Lord. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. This is a beautiful prayer. Do you see the balance in it? God, don't, I don't want to be rich. I don't want to be tempted to not trust you. God, I don't want to be poor because I don't want to have to steal stuff. Give me just what I need. Give me contentment with what you've put right in front of me and help me be wise with it. But keep riches from me because that's a temptation and keep poverty from me. That's a temptation. That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for this church. I hope that that prayer by Solomon, that you see the honesty in it, the balance. He's honest with God. God, I don't want to be poor. It's okay to pray that. God, don't, don't let me be poor. <laughs> but do we follow that up with, yeah, but God, don't make me rich either. I don't want you leaving here feeling beat up about how little we all give comparatively. I don't want you to leave here feeling like we've walked in this enough and that we're good and that there's a ceiling to it. This is about the church being the pillar and buttress of truth so that people will believe in Jesus and we haven't hit the ceiling on generosity. We haven't hit the ceiling on sharing and we need to be careful to not want to be rich at the same time. But we haven't hit the ceiling and here's why. We have not hit the ceiling on generosity because there was no ceiling on his generosity to us in Jesus. He didn't say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold a little bit out here to you and see if you'll be content with it. No. The word says he lavished upon us all of his righteousness. All of it. All of it. See that open hand? Not holding on to anything. Fingers open. He said, all of it. I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you all of me. And I won't hold back anything. So how could we have a ceiling on our generosity? Let's, I hope we continue to walk in this and pray this prayer with Solomon. There is a lot of temporary stuff around me. I don't know about you. But I am surrounded by temporary things. And I pray that we all enjoy it and share it for his glory and bless one another. But that we also continue to fight to love him more than our stuff and our money. I hope that we continue to fight to love him more than our stuff and our money, and that he brings a balance that Solomon prayed for. God, don't, don't make me poor, but don't make me that rich. Help me find that balance for your glory and for the protection of the church. Y'all pray with me. Before we take the Lord's Supper, um, God, we want to just thank you for <clears throat> your word and thank you that Paul never made it to Timothy. And that he wrote this stuff down so that we can be the church that brings you glory. I also pray that you would guard us from wanting to be rich. And that you would guard those with wealth from depending on it. Help us, Lord. Help us help each other. I pray that this church will bring you glory by how it moves together. 
and that we have a balance in this when it comes to money, knowing that it's a good gift from you. And we're grateful that we don't have to barter this week. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would give us the wherewithal to walk in this message. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Jesus was meeting in the upper room with the disciples, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, I'm sorry, let me go back, let me back up here. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Sharing. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. He's going to appear. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of ultimate generosity with no ceiling. Let's pass out the elements.